Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. I am your host, Tom Marshall. We're going to continue our deep dive into key shows of the 90s, where we will eventually converge with fall 1997. And for that, we're going to go into each of those shows in detail. However, we're building our way up, and we land on an amazing show today. Um, let's let RJ introduce it, my co-founder. I have great co-founders this season, um, and I'm lucky today to have Osiris co-founder, sorry, I have co- great co-host this season, Osiris co-founder, Whoa. RJ. How are you? Hey, Tom, I'm great. I'm excited about this. Um, we've been making our way through the 90s and, and we're going we're gonna to keep gonna keep going. Um, this, uh, this show that we're talking about today is May 8th, 1993, the last show of the Spring 93 tour. It was a highly circulated tape from New Hampshire. It's a blistering show from start to finish. Like you could tell they were absolutely on fire. And we're going to be talking about it with Brad Sands, the one and only Brad Sands. I'm, I'm really excited to have him on and, and Tom can do a quick, quick intro of Brad. But first I should say 
Um, subscribe to Osiris Premium on Apple if you want ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. Um, that's a great way to to support what we're doing here at Osiris. All right, Tom, do you want to tell us about Brad? Yeah, I'm going to bring him on in a second. But um, basically, the best intro for Brad is to say that he doesn't need an intro because he's been a friend of Osiris appearing many times on Under the Scales and Undermine. And he's always a favorite guest because, uh, well, he was the road manager to the band until 2004. And he's going to correct me about that the second he comes on because for this show, he wasn't yet a road manager. Um, but he's a favorite guest, like I was saying, because he knows everything. He's seen everything. Plus, in addition to working for Fish, he was best friends with the band and remains really good friends with all four guys. Um, and he has crystal clear memory for detail. So let me let him in here and say, welcome, Brad Sands. How are you? What's up? There he is. How are you doing? Man? <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. How are you? <laughs> really good. So uh, Brad called me Timmy for no discernible reason and still does. <laughs> that's, that's so I weird, Tom. That's yeah, what Tom does I, to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, you know, he's always been Timmy to me. He'll always be Timmy. Totally. <laughs> so, um, uh, Brad, we want to set the stage for, for, for this show. Um, and I was thinking, Great. first of all, I mean, we have we have a lot of fans and we talk about these shows from the fan perspective, but we're also lucky to kind of dig into the fish organization a little bit. We had Amy Skelton on, mm -hmm. we had Shelly Culbertson on. Um, could you tell us like who some of the recognizable names are now? Of course, in the front office, you don't really know at this point, you don't really recognize John Paluska well, or Shelly, right? But in the right. on the road, Tell us what was happening on the road. Well, no, you do. I mean, because it, it was it was basically John and Shelley. So, you know, obviously, you know, you know who they are. And the, on, at that time, 93, we were starting to get like significantly more popular. And, you know, in 92, we had like a five person crew, which was basically, you know, Chris Carota, Paul at Running Sound, uh, Pete Shaw doing monitors and Andrew Fishbeck was the tour manager at the time. And myself was like driving the truck, selling merch and setting up the back line, you know, and I had no experience in any of that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and setting up the lights too. I mean, so um, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was like a overly intellectually challenging, but it was a lot of work. And by the time we got to 93, I remember we brought Amy on, I believe that tour to actually work for the band. I think she did the new year's run maybe in 92, which was I correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like there was like two shows in new Haven and Matthew's arena. Is that right? Yeah. Is that 92? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, a quick funny story is that we were all hanging out in a hotel room in 92 and Amy got, Amy was drinking and she tackled, me off the bed and I flipped over and my foot went through the window and the glass went down to the, you know, in the New Haven hotel, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> we were like, whoa. <laughs> anyway. That's awesome. Yeah. But, uh, so, I mean, we brought a, and that tour in 93, if I, if I'm right, it was probably the longest tour fish ever did. Right. I mean, it was, it was like four months the from February to, to May, you know, maybe three yeah. months, I guess, but that was a long tour. It's insane. Where, so, where was we the... also at the at the time we started, we had like 
you know, the lighting guy was this guy from New York named like Stu Weitzman, you know, who was like, had this giant, like, he looked like Ronald McDonald, you know, he was a piece of work. And, uh, you know, Bob Newman was our sound tech who was oh, yeah. like from snow sound. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think Greenpeace, Greenpeace Mike was probably out. There's, there's actually a picture on fish, uh, on fish.com of, uh, like there's a backstage photo from this show um that has everybody in the picture so admittedly i looked at the photo and cheated a little bit to know who was in the, in the crew at the time but i do remember <laughs> you know obviously all these people and it was also significantly it was andrew fishbeck who was the tour manager at the time it was his last gig ah he got fired got it. like right after that <laughs> got it. i don't know if we had to know that <laughs> well, well you know well it just it, it, andrew was kind of like not you know he was riding with the band and he just wasn't into it anymore. It just became too much for him. You know, you know he uh, wanted it. He wanted yeah. to go back on his farm and grow fucking potatoes or something. You know, well, he was just like, you know. Yeah. Some people like, uh, you know, a, a young band looks around to their friends like, hey, do you want to be the, yeah. this? You want to do this? You want to do this? And a couple of you guys like <clears throat> worked your way up and made yeah. it all the way to Coventry in 2004. Right. Very few made it beyond. Yeah. Which, probably a couple um uh beth i think beth made <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah beth, but, uh, beth, beth and beth and corona oh <laughs> uh, yeah corona of course corona yeah. um yeah. but uh like like you were saying there's a couple that sort of um you know were friends and then possibly didn't know that they were signing on for this incredible rocket ride yeah i mean i think it also depended on like what job you were in at the time too you know it's like because at that time i was doing i was a guitar tech bass tech <laughs> drum tech and like i know nothing about playing guitar like i can't <laughs> play i'm terrible and i remember that tour was the first tour trey started using the acoustic on both silent and my friend and that was my that was my downfall of, of being a guitar tech because i could not tune that crappy guitar <laughs> you know like to save my life and there's sort of that famous show at red rocks where trey was like you know, <laughs> yeah. So luckily, I found my 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 spot later on and doing different things. You know, what, or what was would, the? Or else I would have been one of those people you'd be laughing about right now. Yeah, remember that guy? <laughs> where was the show, Brad? You talked about this before, but how long before this was the show where you basically volunteered to start helping? Was it several uh, years before? Yeah, uh, like two years. It was in '91, so two years. Yeah. So you're kind of just um, going for a couple of years doing. Various I jobs mean, I, on tour. Yeah, at the time, I was the guy who basically, you know, I was 22 years old. I would do anything, you know. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have, you know, the budget and all this. Were, you know, we were growing exponentially, um, you know, like fast. Not, not like overnight fast, but fast enough, you know, fast enough for you. <laughs> um musically musically bread like you you know this is spring 93 is really i think for a lot of fans when fish really starts to like take off and i, I think you um i think you and tom had talked about earlier about the santana show in, in stowe in the summer of 92 that was kind of the beginning in of this kind of rocket ride for a lot of people but at this point in 93 i mean they're they're touring the country. Their their repertoire has grown so much, and the the playing was just. I mean, like this show. I mean, it's just incredible how there's just no foot off the gas the entire show. But what do you remember about that time period? Just well, musically? I mean, I remember like a couple of moments. Like um, 
you know, obviously the Horde tour, which, you know, I don't even know how much we really wanted to do that, but it felt like something that we should do and, and, and you know, wanted to in a certain degree. Those guys, it was, it was evident, I think, from anybody in our camp that we were special compared to some of the other stuff going on, like in our minds, you know, it was like, this is different, you know? And it really felt like playing those big rooms for the first time. Like Fish had no, like it, it wasn't weird. It didn't feel strange or anything, you know, like, and it felt like at a couple of them, like everybody was there to see us. And that's, I'm not trying to take slight at any of the other bands or anything. It's just, that's how we felt, you know? And um, I also remember a show it was a weird radio show at the Boston Garden. You know, it was like in right around Halloween, I think, or something. And uh, the Spin Doctors were on before us, and it was like they were they had that they had that hit at that point on that on the radio, and like it was the Boston Garden, and it was like it was all fish heads, you know. <laughs> and even the the Santana tour had some sort of start on that because it was like the lawn would be packed with kids, and obviously like. Carlos embracing them was such a big deal. I think, I think both the band and crew learned so much on that tour. Like as a crew, we learned how to be professional. Like we weren't, we weren't kids, you know, we learned there were guys on that tour who had been working for Carlos for 20, 30 years, you know? And at the time we were like, you know, we, me, I remember that tour myself and Pete Shaw, we were mostly driving the truck in the morning and the other guys were on a bus at that point, I think. We would show up, we'd get there at 9 a.m. and just kind of hang out and try and just soak it up as much as possible, you know? Cause that was like a pro crew, you know? Like they had like, they had this guitar tech named Angus, was like, whoa, Angus the guitar tech, you know? And like, you wanna talk about a hard job, like Carlos Santana's guitar tech is so unforgiving, you know? Like, and it's, you know, it's not that he's like a bad guy or a jerk, or it's just, He's fucking Carlos Santana, you know, like that shit better work. Acoustic guitars out of tune. If he's like, yeah, that guy's gone home the next day, like he's out of there. You know, like, luckily Trey was a little bit like, he wasn't quite there yet. You know? um, but no, I mean, I think that like those events and also that 93 spring tour was kind of, we did a short tour in 92 in the, in the winter, I believe, but we had just spent, like we did the horde shows, which were short sets. We did the, the, um, uh, Santana tour. It was a lot of short. This felt like this kind of like 93. It was like, and Paige, I believe the first show with the piano was 93 as well, yeah. which I think played something into it too. You know, it just, we would play, you know, on that tour, I think we played, we started out in um, Portsmouth or Portland, no, 93 was Portland, Maine, but it, you know, we were, by the end of it, we were playing, we could have played bigger places. And then that summer of 93, I think we played like the man for the first time and and, uh, Waterloo and stuff. So 
Wow. You know, it was, I mean, and we had just played two nights at the tower, like two months before that. Like you don't really do that, you know? Right. Yeah. I was, I was on the last episode uh, of undermine. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about the two twenty ninety three show at the Roxy uh, and and that three run. uh, Yeah. It it started as a two run and then it sold out and you, you, you added another show, I think. Is how that went. I don't think, I think it, was it was advertised. I don't. I don't know. I think it was just advertised as three, but I could be wrong. Oh, I I'm feel not like sure. it was. I mean, I don't know because at the time I would have just, you know, I was like, so, we were. I know we knew we were doing sold. three nights. Oh, okay, yeah. but um, it was turned out to be the band's probably first three show run, like outside, not counting Colorado or, or mm-hmm. Vermont. But um, but by the time we're here in mid 1993. You guys had just completed playing theaters like the Tower in Philly, <clears throat> State Theater in New Brunswick. Yep. I was at the both Palace of those, and by the, the way. Palace in Albany and then, was a two night run. Yeah, two yep. two nights in Palace. And and do you remember like what a big deal it was for the band to start playing theaters, but also to do? I mean, I, runs? I think it was like it was because we we'd also they played like the Capitol Theater, I think, in like the nineties, right? And they played it with Blues Traveler, and I mean, early nineties. And uh, it was a bigger deal to get like. I remember like being from Philly or a PA, you know, like we always thought, you always think like the Chestnut Cabaret, oh my God, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then you get there and it's like a dump, you know, You're like this place sucks, you know, like, so, you know, and not that the tower, the tower seemed so big at the time, you yeah. know, Yeah. Um, but we were all, we were playing, I remember we did like two nights at a lot of different, like in Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, and I think maybe it was the the first time we played the Warfield was probably 92, I think, or 93. I don't know. You know, yeah. I remember, but um, yeah, it was, I think it was, it was like, it was like a stopover though. It felt like onto bigger things. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, and like one of the things I remember about the UNH field house, it was like, it was a GA floor. And then it had like basic, basically we were playing the half of the basketball thing, you know? So mm. it was like wide, and it was just, but there were bleachers. So it kind of looked almost like a, like a mini amphitheater, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it was packed, you know? And it was like, those shows in New Hampshire were always, it wasn't Boston, you know? It felt more like, like not the real fans, but it was different, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like mm-hmm. the Colonial, like the, I remember the first time I went to the Colonial in Keene, I'd heard all about this place. And I was like, oh, it's a big deal. And then you get there and it's just like a different crowd, you know, I don't know. Mm. The free, the free or die. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. New Hampshire is a little bit of a different place for sure. At the, at the end of a four month tour or whatever, are you, I mean, at this point, are you just happy to like get a break or, or cause I mean, I I can't imagine. I don't, I don't remember it feeling that way. I feel like we were just waiting. We were like glad to be kind of home, you know, Mm -hmm. but like, Mm -hmm. I think we were just kind of looking forward to the next thing. And like the tour was, you know, I mean, I remember for me personally, like two nights at the tower, like I think my dad came, you know, and like it was just sort of like there was a lot of family around on the East Coast and it felt it almost felt triumphant, so to speak, you know, and, you know, those were the days when everybody was just like really focused on just making the band better, you know, and in, in any way we could support them to, for them to play better. You know, you guys are yeah. about to go to. LA, I think later this year to, to record hoist. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think didn't Trey get married in 93. Oh yeah. That's right. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I, I read this little thing on the fish, right. fish and they're like, and John Fishman had a musical party at the Geodome. And I was like, wait, that was Trey's bachelor party. It was terrible. <laughs> it's like, like, uh, remember somebody, were you there? You must've been there. I, I was there. You know? Yeah. It was horrible. Like who, 
who got like like Chris Dyson got really wasted or something. <laughs> like, the wedding was fantastic. The wedding. The was wedding amazing. was amazing. Yeah. The wedding was great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it was before we knew how to throw really good bachelor parties. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, I don't remember it. I remember it feeling like. Like we were just, we were so psyched to be doing it. You know, like everybody was like, band was psyched to play. The crew was psyched to be out there. It just like, it was kind of like our whole life at that time. You know what I mean? Like we didn't, you know, it just felt like we were just moving forward, you know? And I think we also kind of knew how well the shows were selling and at the outdoor places by then. And it was like, wow, this is crazy, you know? So Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the show a little bit more detail. First, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Let's talk specifically about this show a bit, RJ. And of course, we're here with Brad Sands. Yeah. So, Brad, you mentioned earlier kind of like the New Hampshire crowd. I was looking at some of the set lists and Amy Skelton mentioned in the second episode, the Squam Lake Steakhouse. She just like threw out that name, which was a, you know, 1988 venue. But then... In New Hampshire, they moved to, you know, the Stone Church, and then then they play at Dartmouth and UNH. Then there's the Colonial Theater, which you mentioned, and then the Fieldhouse. So it feels like a kind of a microcosm of their overall growth. And I think this the capacity of the Fieldhouse was a few thousand. Um, yeah, it seemed about to be like, it felt big, like not big, big, but it was like, just felt like it was, it was like a tall, big gym, you know? So, yeah. um, it was yeah. like probably, I, I guess probably 2,500 or 3,000. And I mean, I mean we also, we, we played Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a bunch at that little, the great little theater there. And then, you know, the, there was, what's the, the Hampton, the Hampton casino they played with the, with the giant country horns, which is just, you know, I think that place is still there. <laughs> Amazing. The, yeah. the, this show, I mean, it's incredible how, I, just how on fire they were. There's no real other word for it. I mean, they they come out and this this show, I was just like shocked at how there's like, there's almost no breaks. I mean, they're like little ballads, you know, but it's it's so high energy from the beginning and the, the stash, Kung stash. Yeah. I feel like musically at this point, they were just starting to kind of perfect the tension and release, you know, where they really like bring the crowd along through yeah. this peak and then and then into Kung and back into stash and that I mean it's just such a such a trip it's really really good show it's a really um there's a lot of dynamics in this show there's a lot of really quiet parts and and then it builds up like you said the tension release but it's like that to me was always one of the things that fish did almost better than anybody else I mean obviously the dead the dead had the dynamics maybe not so much the big build up like fish but when they would play, like, it felt like when I listened to it just the other day, it's like, it's so patient. Like they're not in a hurry. They're not trying to get through the song to get to the next song. And it just felt like, um, you know, it was different, you know, it was starting to get to that point, but that was the first show that I remember being like so much. So like that just came out of the blue, you know, it yeah, wasn't you can, like, you can hear it in, you know, in, in Reba, yeah. especially like, yeah. um, like for the dead. I mean, I, I don't know the dead as well as you two, but, but to me, I think probably a little bit more than fish. You, you know where the quiet spots might be. Whereas no one, no one expected like in Reba, all of a sudden them all to drop out except Trey tiny bit. It's just beautiful.
Well, and, and, and knowing to drop out and knowing to not like hurry back to get, you know, like, yeah, it's kind of like how what divided skies become that where you're waiting for the note. Like when that first started out, it was really cool in the sense of like, you know, it would be like, oh my God, it's 20 seconds, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. and now it's turned into a thing, but like, you know, this is like, you really hear it in, um, uh, in Reba, there's a little bit of it in the Kung starts out like that and just yeah. builds. And then the second set, the Bowie is just kind of outrageous. I also don't, I feel like they didn't really open with Bowie that much back then. I felt like that was kind of different as well. You know, yeah. you know, mid, mid set coil was not that common, you know, Bowie and Mike's the same set, you know, there was just a lot of things going on. And, uh, you know, even like in a, um, the instrumental amazing grace, you know, I mean, but the stash is like, like kind of just a, it's a, it, that was that moment of like, okay, this might be kind of like a good set, you know? And then it just was like, yeah. And I remember after the show, it was, it was one of those, there's a couple of nights like this where the show ended and you're working, you pack up and then everybody's just kind of hanging out afterwards. And it's like, it was different than like most nights. It was just like, wow, that was like, you felt like the night they did the Terrapin was like that. You know, mm, um, mm-hmm. there's probably a few other ones, but it was just like everybody's just hanging out and just even people who didn't know, like, you know, these guys like Stu and Bob Newman and all that. They didn't they didn't know they didn't really like know it like you might know it or or I might know it, that it was a great show, you know, like. Right. But even they could feel it. It was just the whole thing. Something happened. Yeah, it was just and it was it was very unique in the sense of like, it felt like they were really just like so comfortable in that element. And, you know, that being one of the biggest shows of the tour, you know, sort of a harbinger of things to come in that, you know, I always found that the guys are almost more comfortable with more people, you know, like, yeah. you know, I don't think they, you know, when we would do the kind of club shows or underplays, you know, they were, I, I personally never thought they were as good as, the bigger events or, you know, maybe it's easier to get lost on in, into the music when you're in a big place. I don't know. You know, in all the nineties, um, this is, this is looking ahead a little bit from where we are yeah. now in 93, but what would you say your favorite place to see fish is? Uh, I mean, personally, I always loved Alpine Valley. I just, and that in the spectrum, I mean, the spectrum spectrum because like it's in, you know, it's Philly. And I He's mean, obviously Philly the guy. garden is great, but the spectrum to me always had like its own energy, you know? Um, and Alpine Valley was just such a mass of people. You walk out on that stage and it's like, and they're all like, it goes straight up, you know? Yeah. You know, it's just, it's incredible. Um, it's sad to see the spectrum go. And they keep yeah. talking about again, moving the, the garden, which is, I look back right. in history and realize that's happened like five times, which is weird, but I hope it doesn't yeah. happen again. Cause it's a great room. Well, the new one seems so, I mean, I mean, the old garden was so great with all those weird loge boxes and all this other stuff. And, you know, and also it's Madison Square Garden. I mean, you know, I mean, it it just, you know, but um, I think that this show was, was much more a harbinger of, of how the gigs would happen more, you know, like just anything could happen, you know, because even, even back in the, in the early nineties, it was, it was more like, Certain songs were first set songs, certain songs were seconds. You know, it was, it was, it had a little bit more of that feel of like, you, not that you knew what you were getting, but um, 
you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily hear fee in the middle of Mike's song at, as the closer of the show, you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> right, right. you know, Jim foam was always like the first set opener, you know, like would be in the middle of the second set, you know? Um, yeah, you that's know, Coyle, interesting. Coyle was like a closer, you know, and, um, right. you know, uh, and this one has the know, jam and, out of the piano and, solo. Yeah. And it's also like, they're like, the language was much more prominent and I felt like that yeah. was kind of a sort of a good way for the band to kind of learn how to use the dynamics because you'd always have to stop at that point, you know, and then, right. you know, like, cause that Bowie, the beginning of it has a bunch of that in it. And I don't know where the Alma Brothers thing came, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, so it's crazy. Like, it's like a weird thing that they just played it so perfectly, but you know, yeah, that's kind of like who they are, you know, learn a cover in like an hour, you know, I mean, a whole, or a whole album. There's you know? so much, I was thinking it's like sort of fearless exploration in this show, you know, and it's like the Bowie, like Paige starts playing Jessica and then they're all like, all right, let's do it. And then they, you know, this amazing intense Bowie and then they go into have mercy and then yeah. back and he's like kind of stopping on a dime. And you mentioned Tom, the jam that comes out of squirming coil and then crossroads comes and they jam out amazing grace. It's just sort of like, it felt kind of like they were, they, they were kind of in exploration mode. Right, earlier, it was you... like, I think it was like exploration, but it's also like it also like weirdly felt kind of like like a band practice or a sound check, mm. you know, like <laughs> they were really just like I mean, they were they would sound Crossroads was one of those songs they would just sound check and they would like kind of have fun and make stupid faces each other, you know, like. You know, it wasn't like that was like their favorite Eric Clapton song or something, you know, like, right. yeah, it just was kind of like. You know, it was almost kind of a joke in a certain almost way. Like you the, know, the, like it's it, almost like the the new whipping post at the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it just it, it came out of nowhere to me. I mean, because there's yeah. a lot of great shows from that time period, and um, I mean, I remember the State Theater right before that. That's New Brunswick, and 
I remember that show being great, you know? It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I was there for that one. Right. Yep. Loved it. Loved it. Did they do Game Henge at that one? I think, was that the Game Henge one or was there another state theater Game Henge? I don't think they did it RJ will know. I mean, they did it at the Crest in Sacramento, and I felt like the next time they did it was like Great Woods or something, right? Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. right. I think that's I'm, right. I, I think it was him talking about like the whole room like turning upside it down. Have, it might have. No, you know what it was? I think it was like he did. Um, they did like McGrupp or something, which yeah. they hardly ever did. That, or that's right. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They they almost. Did, yeah. They didn't do a full game. Entry. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Brad, where did this like the patient? You, you talked about the patience, and I mean, is that just you know? hundreds of hours of playing over the few four months or, or I mean, was I that was intentional? Just, well, I don't, I, I don't know if it was quite like if I would use the word intentional, I think it was just kind of how they evolved in a certain way, because, you know, I believe that tour was like supporting, like basically rift. I think rift was the album at that time. Right. And rift is so like, you know, it's it's all worked out stuff you know like or for the most part you know and then but then you have like silent in the morning and stuff like that but there i think it was almost like a like a a counter reaction to that that it was like we don't have to like show off our chops or something Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah And, and in a certain sense like you know trey being the only guitar player like when he he would kind of play chords a lot in these like these jams you know and it was like amazing to hear him play like that like not always just soloing but kind of like him laying back giving the other guys some room to do some other stuff and play rhythm like i always loved that you know i mean you hear it on that a little bit on the bowie you know in the when it gets into that you know like it like when it gets it goes kind of dark the other thing i always felt like they could go into these kind of weird dark places but yet you still kind of never felt like it was like they were kind of having fun with it you know they weren't like you know wasn't like at that point yet like dipping into like evil weird territory of like you know (laughs) the parking lot or something you know (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, for sure i mean just like if you listen to that bowie it goes into these kind of weird sort of dark things and and you know, honestly, Chris was a big part of it too. You know, like he was getting bigger light shows and he could do more. And I think like when he would be able to do more stuff with the lights, it kind of freed them up to do whatever because people are just paying attention to him, you know, <laughs> like, cause a lot of the tension release was like, you know, even like, I remember the first time I saw them or one of the first times and they played Golgi, you know? And it was like that, <laughs> I saw you with the lights, you know? And it's like, <laughs> Without the lights, that doesn't have that same effect. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a really and I good think, point. And I think uh, Chris has this has the uh, ability, you know, back then, even then, to like play with the colors when it was when the music would go dark, he would go dark, and it would it would it would enable them to kind of like not have to rush back out and you know play the big moment. You know, I was blown away. Uh, I think right around this time when it's ice played. And that part where they're sliding with the others on the wrong side of the skin and right. go into that underwater mode, how Chris yeah. makes it underwater. 
And I was just yeah. like, oh, this is, uh, I don't know if other bands are doing this, but um, You're right. yeah. keep, keep watching this band. <laughs> yep. uh, that's, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Uh, yeah. Brad, I always ask you this, but uh, I always ask you off camera. So I'm going to ask you on, mm -hmm. on mic. When are you yeah. going to write your uh, tell-all book? Because you were you're very nice this time. Where, where, as, as soon as as soon as my uh, NDA expires. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for joining yeah. us, man. Yeah. Brad, no, no, it's no, always I, I, always always a pleasure, and uh, anytime I'd love to. I love I love talking about it. it. It's cool. It gives me a chance to go back and listen to it because you know I'm too busy wrapped up in my own stuff to listen to. Well, like I stuff, say, but, your 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 memory is always spot on. You yeah. remember uh, you remember things from other shows. When you when you want to talk about when you want to talk about the OJ show, give yeah. me a call. It's, that's okay. my favorite. I love I love that show. Okay, and, and you that kind was of mentioned how, uh, yeah, I, I love that one. I, I will. We'll talk about that. But also, yeah. just just a comment about you. Like, you know, you, you're working, but you also are paying attention to the music. There's a lot of people working that mm -hmm. that you know they hear it, but they're, they're not really paying attention. You pay attention song by song. Well, at that time, too, I was probably the biggest fan working for them, maybe other than Shelly. You know, like right, Shelly was right. a different kind of fan, though. She was just like, you know, she's not going to cut was. loose or like, you know, no, like. But she, like, she you knew know, every song. She's analyzing and, you know, yes. like. But I was still in that mode of like, you know. Wow. Like, uh, you know, like, wow, I can't believe I'm sitting on the side of the stage watching this, you know, <laughs> plus I had that little song list book and I used to write them down and, you know, like yeah. <laughs> I was kind of, and I, and I was also taping at the time, like most of the tapes that are out there in circulation are probably like, I had my little uh, D6 ah. that I would run off of the monitor board ah. and like all those tapes that got out of the nineties were mostly because I gave it to my friends, <laughs> you know, thank you. And, you know, the, they didn't care, you know, so. Thank anyway. you for that. Well, yeah. uh, thank you for joining us. Cool. And remember uh, to the audience, remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. And on the next episode, we'll be wading a little deeper into 1993 to talk about another huge leap in Fish's career. But until then, blaze on. And thank you very much, Brad Sands, for coming and joining us again. We'll have you back. Osiris. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny streaming everywhere now.